0: Sin is our greatest danger, tolerating it in our own lives. Anything that causes us to stumble is extremely serious. It's a great danger to our spiritual lives.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington, Tom is pastor teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series, The Disciples' Greatest Danger. Think for a moment of the things in addition to your body and health that are most precious to you. Maybe it's your career, your family, or perhaps a sentimental gift. Of all the things that come to mind, truthfully, nothing is more important than your soul's eternal destination. And preparing for it in this life is vital, even for those who have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's that reality that makes sin the disciples' greatest danger. And today, Tom will begin to examine a second way that sin becomes a serious danger in our lives not only by causing others to sin, but by tolerating sin in your own life. Herein lies the question, is there sin in your life that you consider not to be an issue? Keep all that in mind as we join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed.
0: Perhaps in US history, fewer jobs have been more difficult or more horrific than that of a Civil War surgeon. From Ken Burns' documentary on the Civil War and from a website dedicated to Stonewall Jackson's surgeon, a man named Hunter McGuire, I learned the primary reason that it was so hard the Civil War was on the surgeons who worked. It's because the injuries that they had to deal with were dreadful and the fault of a soft lead ball named the mini ball. It had the capacity to kill at over a thousand yards. This soft lead bullet caused large, gaping holes, splintered bones, and destroyed muscles and arteries and tissues. It crushed and smashed the bones so badly that the doctors really were left with no choice but to amputate the limb. Of the wounds recorded in the Civil War, some 70-plus percent of them were to the extremities. And because of this bullet and its havoc, There was really no option for the surgeon but to amputate the limb. We've all been shocked by the images of those frequent amputations and even the Civil War pictures of of literally stacks of limbs that had been amputated after some of those horrific battles. That's a terrible image. And yet, in the passage we come to tonight, Jesus uses the shocking image of amputation to describe just how seriously we must deal with sin in our lives. As one commentator, William Lane, writes, whatever in one's life tempts one to be untrue to God must be discarded promptly and decisively, even as a surgeon amputates a hand or a leg in order to save the life. That's really the message. That we see in the passage before us tonight in Mark chapter 9. Let me remind you that it was about a year, or I should say in the year before his crucifixion, Jesus took his disciples and spent some five months living in Gentile areas. During those months, he ministered to some of the Gentile population, but he spent most of his time privately training his 12 disciples And then in the fall of what was probably 29 AD, Jesus brought his disciples back to Capernaum. Of course, that was the city on the northwest corner of the lake there in Galilee. That had been his ministry headquarters during the great Galilean ministry. Jesus and his disciples come back from Caesarea Philippi, back down to Capernaum there by the lake. They probably arrived back late in the day near the time of the evening meal We can't be sure, but it seems like from the context that after the meal was done, after they had eaten, Jesus assumes the official position of a teacher. Notice verse 35 of Mark 9, sitting down, he called the 12. That was the typical position of a Jewish rabbi. He is now going to instruct them. Let me read for you this text. It begins in verse 42 and runs down through verse 48. Mark 9, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Sin is always our greatest danger. And how does the danger of sin in our lives actually show itself? Sin is a real threat to our spiritual lives primarily in two ways. First of all, by causing others to sin. When we cause others who believe in Christ to sin it's as if we were sinning against our Lord himself. That's the essential lesson. And we will face severe discipline, so much so that Jesus says it would be better for you if you were to die a violent and premature death. Tonight we come to the second way that sin becomes a serious danger in our lives, not only by causing others to sin, but also by tolerating personal sin. Now before we work our way through the section, it's absolutely crucial that we understand what our Lord does not mean here. Sadly, this passage has been widely misunderstood in the history of the church, so let's start by looking at what our Lord is not saying. First of all, he's not saying that the physical body is inherently evil. There are a number of passages that talk about this, 1 Corinthians, Paul says our bodies, now that we're in Christ, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You also see in Philippians 1 that Paul says, it's my desire if I'm going to be here in this life, as well as if I die, that Christ will always be exalted in my body. So the body is not inherently evil as Greek dualism taught. That's not the biblical view at all. So Christ isn't saying that. Secondly, he's not saying that sin is primarily physical, a physical act. That certainly runs contrary to passages like 2 Corinthians 7, 1, where we're told to cleanse ourselves from all defilement of both the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It also runs contrary to what the Apostle John says in his first letter, 1 John 2.15, when he says that everything that's in the world, that characterizes the world, has far more to do with what goes on in the heart, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, and then it radiates out into behavior. And so our Lord is not saying that sin is primarily physical. He's also not saying that physical mutilation can somehow protect us from sin or accomplish true spiritual change in our lives. The truth is the Old Testament strictly forbade masochism and mutilation of the body in various forms. Sadly, though, some in the early church didn't understand that. There were those, if you read any church history, who tried exactly this approach. They misunderstood our Lord's words here and in other places, and they actually mutilated their own bodies. For example, Origen of Alexandria, who lived from about 185 to 254 A.D., had himself emasculated because he thought that that would enable him to overcome his sexual temptations. By the way, it wasn't long after that that one of the church councils, I believe it was Nicaea, outlawed the practice, made it clear that that's not what our Lord was teaching. And that's because our bodies are simply acting in response to our hearts and minds. Our bodies don't act independently. They do what our wills and desires tell them to do. They are simply the instruments by which we carry out the desires of our hearts. And so to cut off parts of the body doesn't cut out the heart that moves the body. So our Lord wasn't teaching that. Neither was he teaching that there is real spiritual value in asceticism. He's not teaching that. Some have thought that that's exactly what the Lord was teaching, that there was some benefit, some value in that. And... Unfortunately, this idea is becoming more popular in the evangelical church today. As we sort of see people drifting away from our Reformation roots, they're drifting back to medieval theology. And therefore, they're finding a lot more benefit and practical value, they think, in those monastic type practices. They're experimenting with medieval spiritual practices and customs. Deprive the body, they say, and that's going to help you grow spiritually. Is that what Jesus means? No, absolutely not. In fact, look at Colossians chapter 2. He talks about those who add to the Scripture, who, verse 18, are involved in the worship of angels and visions. They're into visions and and supernatural experiences, they're not holding fast to the head that is Christ, verse 19. If you have died with Christ, verse 20, to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to these sort of external Extra-biblical decrees are rules, rules like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This is essentially a form of asceticism. It's saying you need to deprive yourself of certain things. And if you do that, then that's going to make you more spiritual. That's going to put you more in touch with God if you deprive yourself of the things he's given us. And he says in verse 23, these are, by the way, at the end of verse 22, he says, this is in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, not God. Verse 23, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom, but it's simply self-made religion, and this self-abasement and severe treatment of the body are of no value against fleshly indulgence. How could Paul have made it any more clear than that? It's of no value. So that's not what our Lord is saying. The Bible does not command or even encourage any form of asceticism. Depriving yourself with the idea that somehow that's going to either earn you favor with God or it's going to make you more spiritual. So if that isn't what Jesus meant, what does he mean? Well, as we let this passage unfold... We could say that Jesus here makes six distinct affirmations about sin's danger and what we must be willing to do to cut it out of our lives. Let's work our way through these six affirmations. Number one, tolerating our own sin is the greatest danger to our souls. Notice in verse, back in Mark chapter nine, in verse 43, Jesus refers to being caused to stumble. He uses that same expression in verse 45, stumble, and then again in verse 47, something causes you to stumble. Jesus says that anything that causes us to sin puts us in such mortal danger that we have to be willing to take extreme measures to protect ourselves, Sin is our greatest danger, tolerating it in our own lives. Anything that causes us to stumble is extremely serious. It's a great danger to our spiritual lives. The second affirmation our Lord makes is not a pleasant one, and it's not popular in today's Christianity, but it's a reality. Eternal punishment in hell is a reality. You know, many New Testament writers comment on this, but no one in Scripture has more to say about hell than our Lord. The word hell is used 12 times in the New Testament. 11 of those times, it comes from the lips of Christ. The only exception is James 3, 6. First of all, I want you to notice how Jesus here identifies, as he does in every place, that there are only two alternatives after death. The first one is to Notice verse 43, enter life. He repeats it again in verse 45, to enter life. Down in verse 47, enter the kingdom of God. That is one alternative after death, to enter life or to enter God's kingdom where he rules. The kingdom of Christ as it's also called in the New Testament. The other alternative is described in verse 43 as to go into hell. In verses 45 and verse 47, it's to be cast into hell. Notice how that ratchets up. In one case, it's to go into hell, in the other, it is to be forcibly thrown into hell. It's a graphic picture, but one that that really borrows from what you read at the end of Revelation. And Matthew, in in the parallel passage, Matthew quotes Christ as saying to be cast into the fiery hell and to be cast into eternal fire. So those are the two alternatives. That's it. There are no other options. Our Lord made it clear it's one or the other. Now notice how this place is described. In verse 43, he says it is the unquenchable fire. Literally, the Greek text says, the fire, and then it uses a word that comes right into English the fire, the asbestos. It's literally what the Greek text says. The fire, the asbestos. In other words, it's fire that can't be extinguished. Matthew calls it, as you see here, eternal fire. That means it's suffering that lasts forever. In fact, Look at Matthew, chapter 25, Matthew 25, verse 46. This passage makes it so clear that these are the two eternal alternatives. Matthew 25, 46, he says, verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment. And then he says, but the righteous into eternal life. Now notice you have two alternatives again. On the one side, eternal punishment. On the other side, eternal life. You have the damned into eternal punishment. Those he deems as righteous, not as we know by their own righteousness, but by the righteousness of another, into eternal life. But the key here is, the words for eternal are exactly the same. So whatever happens to the righteous, however long that is, is exactly the same duration as the punishment of the wicked. It's eternal in the same way that we enjoy eternity. So however long eternal life lasts, there will be eternal punishment. Now back in Mark 9, Jesus also teaches here that those who we cast into hell will have bodies. Notice verse 43, having your two hands to go into hell. Verse 45, having your two feet to be cast into hell. And verse 47, having two eyes to be cast into hell. It is a place, according to Jesus, where there will be bodies. We understand that even from Revelation, don't we? There, John the Apostle describes a resurrection in which the unrighteous are raised from the dead, united with their bodies, and then cast into the lake of fire, as it's described there. And with that in mind our lord here and in matthew associates this place of eternal punishment with fire the word fire is used more than 20 times in the new testament to describe hell here's just a few examples the fire unquenchable fire the fiery hell the furnace of fire the eternal fire the fiery hell In Matthew 18 again, the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries, the punishment of eternal fire, the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, the lake of fire and brimstone, the lake of fire, the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. All of those from texts in the New Testament and those last from the texts in Revelation. Fire, what does the fire refer to? Are they literal flames as we know them? That is clearly possible. But we just don't know for sure. Many orthodox scholars through the history of the church have taken the fire to be literal. Many others have believed it to be metaphorical. But folks, this much we know. At the very least, God chose an image from this world to help us picture the terrible reality of hell. There will be very real, intense, physical and mental suffering. As John MacArthur writes, if the fire is symbolic, the reality it represents will be even more horrifying and painful. Now, in Mark 9, Jesus uses a Greek word for hell that is Gehenna. That's the word. When you read the word hell there in your English text, it's the Greek word Gehenna. Matthew refers to the Gehenna of fire, Gehenna is the Aramaic form of the Hebrew word Gebenhinnom. It means literally the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. It's called Topheth as well in the Old Testament. This was a valley that was just southwest of the city of Jerusalem, just outside the city walls. In the Old Testament... It's notorious because children were offered there in fire to false gods, literally burned, roasted alive. But once the people repented of their idolatry, this site where that happened became a kind of pariah, and Josiah declared the place to be unclean in 2 Kings 23. By Jesus' day in the New Testament times, it had become the garbage dump for the city of Jerusalem. A trash fire burned there all the time, giving off a horrific odor. Because of the trash, it was also infested with maggots. So it served then as a profound picture or image of the reality of eternal hell. In addition to that, sometimes the bodies of criminals were dumped there and burned instead of receiving a proper burial. So Jesus often uses this word, to describe hell. It's like Gehenna, he said. Notice verse 48, how he describes it there. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That verse, as you see, is in all caps. It's taken from the Old Testament. It's specifically taken from Isaiah 66. Turn back there. Isaiah 66 and verse Twenty four, the last verse of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah says, They will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, God says, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Isaiah here pictures believers gazing upon the corpses of God's defeated enemies. The picture is of a battlefield and those who have rebelled against God have been slain by the divine warrior and now their carcasses litter the battlefield. What follows that is so bad that the rabbis, when they read this portion of Isaiah, changed the reading when they read it publicly because on occasion, the victors in a battle would leave the bodies of their victims on the field unburied. It was the ultimate act of desecration. What the birds didn't eat, the worms finished. In our world, when a maggot consumes its prey, it dies. And when a fire has burned up its fuel, it goes out. But here, and in our Lord's words in Matthew 9... In hell, the maggot doesn't die and the fire never goes out. That is figurative language for the eternal duration of hell. Now, this is hard for me to say. This is hard for me to preach. It's hard for you to hear. But folks, understand this. Most people in our world today cannot allow the possibility that there is a place of eternal play, pain like this. But there is no question, as you can see, that our Lord taught these things about hell. And so to reject hell is to reject our Lord.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his current series, The Disciples' Greatest Danger, Tom will bring you Part 4 on our next broadcast, as he once again takes us to God's Word. And we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on the Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the Again, that's listeners at the Or you can call us at one eight seven seven five seven seven Word. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.